This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Adjourned to our reception will be by Garrett Roll and Dr. Sindhu Chandran. I think she's here. And it's what's hot, what's new. This is a laudable task of reviewing literature for what's available. And here we go, Dr. Roll. I know that we're, we're the last people standing between you guys and the finish line, so we'll be quick. Um, and I'm a surgeon, so there won't be too much science here. should be relatively easy to follow. Um, you can't really talk about the year's literature without talking about opiates. Certainly, opiates are a big topic. Uh, this group looked at um, opiates in a large number of patients before and after kidney transplant and tried to correlate that with outcomes. They found about 43% had an opiate prescription before transplant, which is, you know, in the year before transplant, which is not surprising. And about 60% of of patients who had high-level opiate use before transplant continued to have high-level opiate use after transplant, which I guess is not surprising either. But they did find a significant association between the amount of opiates they used and outcomes, which were impressive. So if you look at this on the left, as we go from left to right, we're going from no opiate use on the left to a high level of opiate use in the year before transplant. And you can see that death, death censored graft failure, and all-cause graft failure were all increased as you used more opiates in the year before transplant. Pretty significant increases. And then if you look at opiate use after transplant, again, no opiate use or very minimal opiate use on the far left to high opiate use on the right in the year after transplant, you see a, you know, a really significant increased risk of death and graft loss. So uh, very, very uh, interesting topic that's hot in the literature right now. This is just another way to present that same data, but again, increasing opiate use, causing graft loss and death. So we all need to be very mindful of, of our opiate prescribing, and there certainly seems to be an association between the amount of opiates that patients are taking and these risk factors. This group looked at just opiates after transplant, trying to quantify the problem, and again, associating with death and graft loss. And they found about 15% of patients developed long-term opiate use after kidney transplant, which is uh, a pretty high number, considering that that's probably higher than most of the surgical complications that we consent patients for at the time of surgery. Uh, Patients who had more than 90 days' worth of use, which they considered long-term, and who had high use, um, also had increased risk of death and graft loss in this study. So... Certainly, I think these both studies are arguing that we need to work on our opiate prescribing practices before and after transplant. We're certainly doing that with our our living donors and our recipients as a quality improvement measure at UCSF, but I think it's it's really a nationwide problem. On to cannabis, which may help us learn a little bit about the information or may help us understand a little bit of the information we just saw. So cannabis is now legal for use in some states, medicinally in 29 states, and recreationally in eight. And about 3% of people meet the criteria for cannabis cannabis abuse. But there's really little information for providers and patients, especially around, around kidney transplant, to help guide us. So this group linked SRTR data with Medicare claims of cannabis abuse. And they found it was 
relatively uncommon. So about less than 1% of patients uh, actually abused cannabis. But if they did, then there were significant associations with these diagnoses showing up after transplant, which would be alcohol abuse, other drug use, depression, schizophrenia, and noncompliance. And the hazard ratios are pretty high. I mean, the hazard ratio for alcohol abuse being diagnosed in the year after a kidney transplant, if you were abusing cannabis, was 12 or so. So pretty high. Um, And what you see is they also had increased risk of graft loss and death, which is not insignificant. So cannabis abuse may be relatively rare, but in patients who are abusing cannabis, um, that seems to travel with other psychosocial conditions that we really have to monitor for and treat if we can, because it certainly causes increased risk of death and graft loss after kidney transplant. On to vaccines. There was a little discussion of vaccines this morning. I'll go through this paper pretty quickly. Um, We know our recipients' vaccines are very important to our recipients because of their risks. And in general, we do an okay job, but we could do better at providing um, proper vaccination to our recipients before transplant. And we don't really understand the effectiveness of vaccines after transplant. So this group simply compared the vaccine history at listing and at transplant to two groups of patients. One group, they performed an intervention, which was they basically hired a provider to achieve proper vaccination based on the serologies in one group, and the other group got the standard of care. So they had, you can't see this, but 54 patients had actually had a provider whose um, sole job was to uh, make sure that they were vaccinated, and the other 65 patients just had standard of care. And the conclusions they came to aren't really that surprising, that serologies are much more important than than patient-reported history. Um, If you just go by history, you'll give a lot of patients vaccine that don't need it, and you'll miss people who do need vaccine. They came to the conclusion that tetanus toxoid provided strong immunity, which I think probably all suspected, and that hepatitis B immunity was, was low and waning, as we expected and that their catch-up immunization plan resulted in better immunity to hepatitis A and strep pneumo, but not to hepatitis B. So even with a, a concerted effort with a, a provider whose job it was to get the patients immune to hepatitis B, it wasn't possible. Um, but I think the strep pneumo point is, is important for us to think about as a system. And on to live attenuated vaccines, which I think Peter Chinhon touched Peter Chin Hong touched on this morning. Um, they're generally avoided, except for the varicella vaccine, uh, which is is commonly used now in patients who are immunosuppressed. But the measles vaccine is avoided because we don't really have great treatment for measles. And this is important to think about in the setting of, of measles outbreaks. So this group actually did a prospective interventional trial where they enrolled children after liver transplant. So this is a liver transplant population, but similar to kidney transplant patients. These are children who were transplanted when they were young, and they to be enrolled, they had to be greater than a year out from transplant. They had to be on stable immunosuppression, and they were given the standard vaccine with booster dosing as required, and they followed urine 
for virus shedding, and um, they examine the patients frequently in the beginning and phone interviews after that to make sure they didn't develop measles. They identified 90 patients who were an average of 10 years old, five years out from transplant. A significant number had had a previous rejection episode. They found that only about 50% of this pediatric population was seroprotected at, at inclusion. So they gave 40 patients vaccine. And they had really good seroprotection after one dose and excellent after two doses of vaccine. But that waned by a year to about 60%. They gave booster doses to those people and then achieved seroprotection again. But again, it waned at two years, and you see the same thing at three years. So the immunity is achievable but is waning. They did have a significant number of systemic side effects, fever, malaise, rashes, and a few other episodes, but the study clinicians determined that there were no serious events attributable to the vaccine, so they thought it was safe. And there was never detectable measles in the urine. And you don't really need to see the words on this graphic, but it's just the patients uh, over time, and the horizontal dotted line is seroprotection. So if they're above the line, they're protected. If they're below the line, they're not protected. And you can see that they can achieve protection, but then at a year, they lose it, and they need a booster. They get protected again, and then they lose the immunity, and then they get protected again. So there are very high rates of seroprotection with the measles vaccine, um, but about 40% of patients required a booster, and they didn't see any viral shedding in the urine, and concluded that year- yearly surveillance was really important in patients who are vaccinated while they're immunosuppressed. And it was nice to see that this live attenuated vaccine could be administered in liver transplant recipients who were over a year out from transplant who were unstable, relatively low-dose immunosuppression without any issues. On to transplanting patients over 70. So this group in France France looked at 41,000 patients who were uh, started dialysis over the age of 70 and wanted to uh, identify survival benefit and uh, transplant benefit and risk factors for mortality in this population. You can see that it took about nine months for the perioperative risk of, of mortality to decrease, but you can see in the graph on the right that transplant versus being on dialysis provided significant survival benefit for this population. And these patients all received um, high-risk extended criteria to see stoners. And they came to the conclusion that a very small percentage of the the patients were, the, the patients over 70 were actually transplanted. And the risk of death was three times as high for three months compared to still being on the list. But compared to um, dialysis, mortality was lower at three months. And the risk factors for mortality they identified were probably what you would expect, which would be diabetes, greater than one cardiovascular risk factor, and being on dialysis for more than two years. So we thought that this really supported... and show the importance of, of living donor kidney transplant in this population, getting them transplanted before they're on dialysis for, for too long. And the last thing I'm going to talk about quickly is AV fistula ligation after kidney transplant. 
Um, so the current state is, I think, about 5% approximately of patients get their AV fistula ligated after transplant. You guys could probably tell me more about that. But I think that we don't really understand whether there's the ability to reverse the maladaptive remodeling um, if the fistula is ligated. So whether the heart can remodel after we ligate the fistula. So this was a randomized trial to see if AV fistula ligation after kidney transplant could um, reverse maladaptive remodeling in the heart. So they had uh, 27 patients in each arm. Basically, the patients came in at a year after transplant, and if they had a functioning graft, they got, they got randomized, and they either got their fistula ligated or not, and they all had a cardiac MRI that day. And then six months later, they came back and got another cardiac MRI. So their primary outcome was um, left ventricular mass, and you can see uh, the far right is the group who had the AV fistula ligation, and they had a 20, over a 22-gram reduction in their myocardial mass, and the left ventricular mass index was also reduced. The secondary outcomes that they looked at may be a little bit too small for you to see, but they were basically all significant. Um, and they also looked at BNP after six months after their fistula was ligated, and you can see a 200-point drop in the BNP after fistula ligation. So we can say that AV fistula ligation in patients with a well-functioning graft reduces myocardial mass and may improve cardiac mortality, but I think it's a little bit early to say, but it's something important to think about. I'm going to leave it there and hand it over to Sindhu. So hello, everyone. Uh, you know, so my friend Abraham in the audience suggested that I have an audience response question right in the beginning since my presentation was missing that. So he wanted to know how many people would like to skip this presentation and move straight to drinks. <laughs> <laughs> and how many people would like to continue this presentation? <laughs> so I told him that was not allowed because we need permission from Deb to ask that kind of question first. <laughs> but I wanted to bring that up as a thought for next time. So moving on, so I think I wanted to address some of these uh, issues. I think we've heard a lot of wonderful talks about uh, immunology, about kidney, pancreas transplants, myeloma, and some of these innovative and, uh, you know, very brilliant trials that Flavio and June and so on are doing. But I think we want, I wanted to focus a little bit on some of these subtle and complex uh, com uh, complications that we see post-transplant in our patients that have been around for a long time and look at the literature and see what has been new in the last year regarding these um, issues that we encounter and whether there is something we can learn and take away from it. So I think everybody in this audience knows that bone disease in kidney transplant patients is, uh, I think, the, you know, the uh, defining thing for subtle and complicated and complex. The fracture risk is high in kidney transplant patients and it is certainly higher than in healthy individuals, but also higher than patients on dialysis. And 10% of pre uh, patients who uh, have a kidney transplant, at least 10%, will experience a fracture during their lifetime. And as you know, it is a combination of several different problems. One is high turnover disease, which we typically see with hyperparathyroidism. But then also more recently, or at least in the last decade or so, we have become more familiar with adynamic bone disease, low turnover bone disease, with the use of vitamin D analogs as well as the uh, uh, calcium mimetics. And then, of course, on top of this, you have the additional complexity of osteoporosis in these patients. So 
Um, what do we know about uh, how the bone mineral density evolves over time in these transplant patients, and what are the approaches that have been used to treat them, and particularly with reference to bisphosphonates? This was sort of my question. So there were two nice studies published. Actually, there were more studies published in the last year, but these were two nice ones. One was looking at BMD changes after kidney transplant. This was a two-year assessment of a French cohort uh, in the more recent transplant era, so between 2005 and 2011. They selected 259 patients. All of these patients had undergone two post-transplant bone mineral density assessments at nine months post-transplant and then another one two years later. 96 of these were women, so uh, it's a little bit on the low side uh, representation in this cohort. About 30% of the patients in this cohort, 75 patients had undergone steroid withdrawal and they had not later resumed steroids. So within this cohort, they were able to compare those who had stayed on steroids versus those who underwent steroid withdrawal. So what they found first was, looking at the first assessment, that there was a high prevalence of reduced density even at baseline. Already when they did skeletal survey, uh, skeletal x-rays on these patients, they found that 10% had already vertebral fractures, and 80% of them had either osteoporosis or osteopenia. And out of this cohort, 95 uh, individuals ended up being prescribed oral bisphosphonates. So they were able to also analyze those who got bisphosphonates versus those who did not get bisphosphonates and look at how their bone mineral density changed over time. So the mean, uh, the mean duration of bisphosphonate therapy in this uh, observational cohort was 21 months. So these are the results. So when they look at bone mineral density gains at two-year follow-up, this is a table. And here in the second and the third columns, you see the patients who had early steroid withdrawal compared to those who stayed on steroids in the third and the fourth columns here. And what you see is that in both cohorts, so those who underwent steroid withdrawal as well as those who stayed on steroids, there were gains in bone mineral density. So both patients in both cohorts gained uh, density at the lumbar spine, the femoral neck, and the total hip, although the degree of gain was lower in those who stayed on steroids versus those who uh, did not stay on steroids. And when they looked at the BMD gain between early steroid withdrawal and uh, steroids, they found that it was statistically significant for the lumbar spine and the total hip. What they also found was when they analyzed the cohort who had received bisphosphonate therapy, that it was associated with higher gains, at least two times as high gains at all three sites compared to those who had not received bisphosphonate therapy. So this observational cohort suggested, A, that steroids, uh, not surprisingly, are associated with reduced BMD gain. So even though all patients tended to gain density after the transplant, it tended to be less in patients who, were steroid, who got steroids, and that patients who got bisphosphonates were able to mitigate this and actually have a, uh, you know, a more significant gain in their bone density. So this was an observational retrospective cohort. So we also had a nice randomized trial of zoledronic acid. This was a 12-month prospective clinical trial. This was done in living donor kidney transplant recipients in Brazil. The exclusions were those who had a high PTA, those who had a low PTH level, those who had had parathyroidectomy, those who already had adynamic bone disease or previous use of bisphosphonates. The primary objective of this trial was to see whether bisphosphonate therapy increases low turnover bone disease in this population, because that is one of the risks of using bisphosphonates in this population, which has made people cautious in the past about using them. So there were 34 patients. They were randomized one is to one to either getting zoledronate or control. The patients who got zoledronate got a single dose, five milligrams IV at the time of transplant. Both groups received cholecalciferol supplements to keep the 25-hydroxy vitamin D level greater than 30. And all patients were maintained on TAC, uh, myofortic, and on steroids. So everybody in this cohort got steroids. 
So uh, what were the parameters that they looked at? So they looked at parameters at baseline and then one year post-transplant. So they looked at serum markers of bone turnover. They looked at a DEXA scan. And they looked at this very interesting technique called high-resolution peripheral quantitative CT, which is a state-of-the-art imaging technique to assess micro microarchitectural aspects of bone quality and also uh, at the distal radius and the tibia. So it gives you information about the peripheral skeleton rather than the central skeleton, which is looked at in the DEXA scan. And it also gives information on the density of the trabecular as well as the cortical bone. So this is just an example, not from this study. This is an HRPQCT image of the distal tibia. This is in a postmenopausal woman without fractures, and this is in a diabetic postmenopausal woman with osteoporotic fragility fractures. And as you can see, that the trabecular you know, you can see the density of the cortical bone is much less as compared to this, and it gives you a really good picture of what's going on inside the bone. Additionally, these patients also underwent a bone biopsy at baseline, and then dynamic histomorphometry, which involved giving tetracycline to these patients before the biopsy so they could look at the turnover in the bone. So the baseline characteristics, uh, ultimately 32 patients ended up participating in the trial, 16 in each group, and 31 patients under, underwent bone biopsies. And so mostly uh, patients, these were non-obese white men who were relatively young and had been on dialysis for a median of two years. The GFR ended up being relatively comparable in both groups at 12 months, and the cumulative steroid group was not significantly different between the groups. So these are the results. So when it came to biochemical and hormonal ma uh, markers, they found that all patients had an increase in the serum calcium. All patients had a reduction in the PTH, esclerostin, the bone alkaline phosphatase, and TRAP5B, which is a marker of bone uh, resorption. And these were not significantly different between the two groups. So kind of disappointing. Then they looked at the histomorphometry, and here they looked at turnover, mineralization, and volume. And you can see low turnover bone disease are the gray bars, and you can see that low turnover bone disease in the control group went up. In the zolidronate group also went up. But the differences were not diff significant. So even though low turnover bone disease increased in both groups, this difference was not exaggerated by the zoledronic acid. So at least giving bisphosphonates to these patients did not seem to cause an excessive risk of adynamic bone disease compared to people who did not get zoledronate. There was no change in mineralization that they saw, and they saw a decreased prevalence of high trabecular uh, volume in both groups. So overall, these changes were kind of disappointing. They did not seem to be very different in patients who got zoledronic acid versus those who didn't. When they looked at bone density, however, this was interesting. So on the DEXA scan, what they found, again, was uh, that in the control group, as well as in the zoledronate group, the BMD, uh, the bone mineral density at the L-spine, the femoral neck, and the total hip improved in both groups, but this improvement was much higher in patients on zoledronate, and this p-value was significant for the L-spine and the femoral neck. When it came to the peripheral skeleton, however, these differences were not the same. So what we have seen from this study as well as from the French cohort is that the bone mineral density increases in all patients post-kidney transplant, and uh, this is assessed at the central skeleton. But the HRPQCT, which looks at the peripheral skeleton, found that bone was actually lost. So cortical as well as trabecular bone density and volume fell in both groups of patients after transplant, and they think that most of it was probably related to steroid therapy. However, zolidronate was able to partly attenuate the bone loss at the tibia, so even though it did not completely prevent it, it was able to mitigate some of that loss, but not at the radius. So to summarize, bisphosphonate treatment did not appear to induce adynamic bone disease. Transplant led to an increase in BMD at the central skeleton, but losses in the peripheral skeleton, which steroids are likely contributing to. And bisphosphonate therapy 
correlated positively with an increase in bone mineral density post-transplant, especially at the lumbar spine and the femoral neck, but it also partially mitigated peripheral bone loss at the tibia. So what is the take-home message? I think it's, uh, bisphosphonate therapy appears to be safe. Consider using bisphosphonates in patients with high fracture risk and evidence of bone loss in the peripheral skeleton at the time of transplant with the caveat that those patients with known um, uh, adynamic bone disease, previous parathyroidectomy, or low PTH were not included in this trial. So now that we know that steroids actually you know, have such a profound effect on bone loss, uh, is it time to revisit the issue of steroid withdrawal? So I think we've heard about steroid withdrawal for a long time, since the 1990s. However, one of the reasons, we know that steroid withdrawal is associated with a higher risk of acute rejection. So often we make immunologically based decisions. When people are at high immunologic risk, we tend to keep them on steroids. But oftentimes we also make decisions which are not based on their immunologic characteristics. We use it Sometimes we uh, keep people on steroids because they have a history of chronic glomerulonephritis. And there have been some previous reports which have suggested that those having chronic GNs are at higher risk of recurrence if they are taken off steroids. So this study wanted to re-examine that in the, uh, uh, in the modern uh, era and see what kind of data we can get. So what they did was they took um, patients from the uh, US RDS database and they took non-diabetic first kidney transplant patients who were at low immunologic risk, so PRA less than 20%. So they ended up with 79,000 patients. They then figured out who had GN as a cause of ESRD and who did not, so they ended up with about 49 patients in the non-GN group and 30,000 30, patients in the GN group. And what they did then did was a propensity, uh, matching, uh, propensity score matching procedure, so in two stages. So stage one, the GN patients were first matched to non-GN patients, and within the GN and the non-GN cohorts, patients who had steroid withdrawal were then matched to steroid-maintained patients, with the objective being to find out if graft loss is higher in patients with glomerulonephritis who are withdrawn from steroids compared to those who are maintained on steroids. So this is the demographics uh, so of the analytical cohort after the matching was performed, the procedure that we talked about. So as you can see, the, there are, uh, 12, they were left with 25,000 patients after they did this. So they had 12,000 patients in the GN cohort, 13,000 patients in the non-GN cohort. And these, all these characteristics, age, uh, sex, race, comorbidities such as heart disease, cancer, living donor, etc., were matched for, and therefore they were not significant between the groups. The uh, other things that I have not included here, but you know, included cold ischemia time, DGF, etc., were also not different between the groups. The primary difference that they saw, because this was not matched for, is the use of immunosuppression. And the maintenance immunosuppression was not all that different, but the use of depleting induction was different. So more patients who had steroid withdrawal got depleting induction compared to those who did not get steroid withdrawal uh, in both groups. The GM groups as well as the non-GN groups. So this is a uh, unadjusted Kaplan-Meier uh, survival curves for time to death sensor graft loss and all-cause graft loss in the steroid withdrawal and the steroid groups in patients with GN. So basically this includes only the GN patients and what they found was that those who uh, underwent steroid withdrawal versus steroid maintenance did not really have a significant difference in the rates of graft loss. And these data were the same for patients who were, did not have glomerulonephritis. So what this suggested was that in this cohort of patients, non-diabetic, first kidney transplant, not very sensitized, steroid withdrawal was not associated with an increased risk of graft loss in patients with GN. Then they did a further subgroup analysis for the outcome of graft loss uh, in which each category of glomerulonephritis was examined separately, and this includes FSGS, membranous, IgA, lupus, etc. And again, they did not find uh, an increased 
a significantly increased hazard uh, ratio for graft loss. So I think to summarize, early steroid withdrawal in this cohort, as defined, was not associated with an increased risk of death censored or all-cause graft loss. The findings were consistent across GN types and after accounting for the transplant center, because as you know, different transplant centers have different practices, so they accounted for that. The findings were restricted, however, uh, to non-diabetic, non-sensitized recipients who underwent early, not late steroid withdrawal. And the median follow-up time was relatively short, 5.5 years. So I think it's, uh, it's, we are still not 100% convinced, but I think it's still important uh, to look upon this as a study that challenges some established uh, sort of concepts. And I think to think about considering steroid withdrawal in patients with GN who are at a high risk of adverse consequences of prolonged steroid exposure. And this includes a lot of patients with GN who are treated with steroids, like lupus patients who've already had years and years of steroid therapy and are at a very high risk of developing the adverse consequences of prolonged steroid exposure. Finally, I want to talk a little bit about what is uh, sort of very interesting and a new topic, checkpoint inhibitors in cancer immunotherapy. And I think some of you may have encountered this in your own practice. So uh, checkpoint inhibitors. So what are checkpoint proteins? Checkpoint proteins are proteins that put the brakes on the T cells. And uh, really, they consist uh, the um, the most well-known ones are CT uh, B7 and B8, uh, B, uh, B7-1 and B7-2, which are present on the antigen-presenting cell. And their interaction with CTLA-4 on the T cell inactivates the T cell. Again, you have PD-1 ligand and PD-1 interacting between the tumor cell and the T cell, and this also causes inactivation of the T cell. So if you are able to block CTLA-4, or if you're able to block the PD-1 ligand or the pd one protein itself, you can unleash the T cell, and this has been used to very great success in cancer immunotherapy. So um, checkpoint inhibitors have revolutionized the treatment of cancer, the, uh, particularly of advanced malignancies. The first report was published in 2010 describing ipilimumab, which, was, uh, which is a CTLA-4 inhibitor, and it was used to treat uh, metastatic melanoma. So uh, since then, several new agents have been approved, and this is a question that, uh, you know, that you may see in your transplant patients. So what's the problem then? Well, tumor rejection and organ rejection are two sides of the same coin, right? So once you activate T cells and you disable these checkpoint proteins, you could easily get activation of not only the T cell against the tumor cell, but the same T cell which is activated can uh, then kill the donor cell, or which is present as a transplant, right? So this could lead to rejection. So does it lead to rejection? Yes. So there have been many, many, many reports uh, of increased risk of rejection with checkpoint inhibitors. So I don't need to uh, belabor that. These are all patients who are post-transplant, had advanced malignancy, and were treated with checkpoint inhibitors and rejected their graft. But is acute rejection inevitable? So, right, so I think we can tell our patients that rejection is a possibility, but they don't generally come back with more questions. And some of these patients may not have very many options besides what uh, the, this is often a therapy which is approved for uh, aggressive and metastatic cancers. So I think it is helpful to have some more data and put it into context for the patient so that they can make an informed decision and also understand more about what, the, what we expect to see. So these are the questions we have. Is acute rejection inevitable? Are all patients who get these agents going to reject their graft? Can you achieve disease control in patients on immunosuppression with these agents? Do these agents even work to control the cancer? What is their efficacy in this group? And can you achieve disease control without getting acute rejection? So are the people who reject also the ones who are going to reject the tumor? Are the people who don't reject 
the ones who are not going to reject the graft, but they also don't get disease efficacy. Is this the same? Are they mutually exclusive? So this uh, study really was basically a compilation of all the reports that have been published so far. So they did a systematic review of 29 reports. They identified 48 organ transplant recipients. They focused primarily on liver and kidney. And from that report, I really looked at only the kidney transplant patients for this meeting. So there were 29 kidney transplant recipients. 22 out of these 29 had melanoma. And eight received ipilimumab only, which is the CTLA-4 inhibitor, and the others received uh, some combination of both. So when you look at graft outcome, so 55% of patients had graft preservation. So they did not have any episode of rejection. So over half of the patients didn't have rejection. Third, out of the ones who had rejection, so you see out of the 45% or so who had rejection, 10, uh, 34% ended up losing the graft, but 10% were able to get by without graft loss. What happened to the tumor outcome? So disease control, which was defined as either complete remission, partial remission, or stable disease without progression, was achieved in 44.8% of patients, which is about similar to what is seen with these therapies with advanced cancer in the non-transplant population. So, and what they found also was that it was not, these populations were not mutually exclusive. So four out of 13 patients who achieved disease control did not have rejection, suggesting therefore that it is possible to achieve disease control without rejecting the graft in this uh, transplant population. So this is just based on a review of, obviously, reports which have been submitted and published. We do not have the full scope of data. We certainly, there are a lot of things which are still unknown. But I think when it comes to counseling patients, at least we have a little bit more information than we did. So finally, coming to this last slide. <laughs> so we still have limited data on the use of checkpoint inhibitors in kidney transplant recipients. The tumor response, however, may be as good as the non-transplant population. One thing they found was that the four people who did not reject and who responded to the graft were actually patients who were still on immune suppression and on reasonable levels of immune suppression. One of them was on prednisone monotherapy, but the other ones were actually on, one was TAC-MMF, one was TAC-Evrolimus, so the one was Evrolimus-MMF. So I think it's really important to th rethink our strategies for immunosuppression in this population. Once somebody has an advanced cancer or melanoma, uh, you know, or whatever else that they have, including cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, really doesn't make sense to lower the immunosuppression all that much. It's not really going to somehow make the cancer magically disappear. But what it really contributes to is an increased risk of rejection in these situations, particularly which then makes it harder, as Dr. Weber pointed out, the, uh, you know, harder to use certain chemotherapeutic agents in this population, as well as harder uh, to uh, then control rejection when they are given these kind of agents, these immune-activating sort of agents. So the role of immunosuppression minimization in patients with advanced cancer is quite doubtful, and I think we have to rethink our strategy in these patients. And then finally, ideal response, that is the anti-tumor response accompanied by durable graft tolerance occurred in 35% of patients, which is something we can tell our patients. And so I think uh, the take-home message is that kidney transplant recipients can be treated with checkpoint inhibitors in a controlled setting. After careful discussion with the patient, an appropriate adjustment of immunosuppression, and ideally this would happen in the context of a particular clinical care protocol or a part of a prospective trial, but we are not there yet. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.